it really is such a joy to be here with you all. Uh, we are celebrating actually the end of this month, uh, four years since we have been gathering together as a church in Beirut. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, through the ups and downs, through the incredibly unexpected God, has been faithful to us, he's been faithful to our church. Uh, in, in those four years, I've had the privilege of preaching through several books, uh, preached through the Gospel of John, that was the first uh, teaching series that, that we went through, uh, through First Peter, through the book of Ruth, and currently we're going through the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a big book. I'm not talking about how many chapters it is or how long it is, but it's filled with, with really big stories, isn't it? Moses in the basket, the burning bush, the plagues, the Passover, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. These are huge stories, and, and we know that everyone likes stories, right? Every culture has storytellers, and, and because we've all heard so many stories, we know when a story is either good or a story is not so good. One of my favorite things in a story is when there are connections made that maybe you don't notice right away. Right? It might be a hint in the beginning that's revealed later on, or, or when a story connects to other stories. It could be a detail or a hidden clue, or kind of like what the Marvel movies have done. Right? They have that clip, the extra clip at, at the end of the credits. I imagine most of you know, know that. If not, you have 100 movies to catch up on. You have to watch all the credits to see the end. Right, so, so what they do uh, is maybe they give you a preview of something that's about to come, or sometimes it's even random. You don't even know what, how it connects, but you know that it's going to make sense later on. Now, last month, Marcy and I were able to see the, the new Spider-Man movie. By the time we went, it wasn't new anymore. It's not very new now. But it's been so long since we went to the movies and, and watched a, one of these Marvel movies that I forgot they do this thing after the credits. Almost ruined our date night by leaving early. But what was nice is that whoever was running the film fast forwarded through the credits in the theater and just got to the clip. Now, I'm not sure that's allowed. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. Uh, th there are probably a list of things that happened in Lebanon that if they were done anywhere else would be illegal. But that's for another sermon. We have tons of these glimpses, foreshadows, interconnections in the Bible. Ethan just mentioned it, and I know you've heard it from the pulpit and through Bible studies, that everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus and, and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Him. But there are certain stories, and we see many of them, especially in Exodus, where the picture of Christ is so powerful that we want to pause and consider it. We don't want to miss what's happening. One major one is the Passover, right? That was the night that God gave instructions to his people to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood and put it on the doorframe. And when God passed through the city to bring judgment on the firstborn of each house, he passed over the homes that were marked with the blood of the lamb. Right? The blood of the lamb was a sign that judgment had already fallen on the house. And in that story, it's, it's clear for us to see how it points to Jesus, right? The perfect lamb of God who was slain for us, who spilled his blood 
as he died on the cross. We can even see the mark of the cross as the Israelites marked their door frame with the blood around the two sides at the top of the frame. Now, other stories maybe aren't as clear, but that doesn't mean that they're any less powerful. Our passage this morning in Exodus chapter 17, it takes place in the period uh, of of history and also the period in the book of Exodus uh, after the crossing of the Red Sea and before they reach Mount Sinai, right, where the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, this time in the wilderness is, is often called a wilderness university. And just like any university experience, it's a time to learn, to grow, and to be tested. Now, there are three back-to-back stories that highlight these tests and also show how the people failed. Exodus chapter 15, we see that the people reach a place with bitter and undrinkable water. They grumble, and God provides. Exodus chapter 16, the people are hungry. They grumble, then God rains bread down from heaven and provides for them. Then Exodus 17, we have a situation that is almost identical in the major ways as it is as we see in chapter 15. So let me read verses 1 through 3. You can follow along on the screen. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Notice a couple of things with me in the text. First of all, we see that God led them to this place. They weren't just kind of out in the wilderness figuring this whole thing out on their own. They were following his lead. And God brought them here. So what does that mean? That, that, That shows us that it wasn't a mistake. But we should ask. We have the space to ask, should I say. Why would God do that? Why did he lead them, his people, from a place of provision to a place where there is nothing to drink? Well, it's an opportunity for them to trust him. One thing that we've been learning as we've been working through the book of Exodus is that God uses difficulties to make himself known. We've also seen that difficulties lead to holy dependence. Well, at least they're an opportunity for us to learn how to depend on God. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to learn that we were created to need him and that he is faithful to us in every circumstance. Now, Rephidim, uh, which is the place they're at with no water, means resting place. Imagine the disappointment they felt. They've just experienced some unexpected things in their life, right? Plagues, Red Sea crossing, going through some trials or walking through the desert. Difficult marching. They're saying, okay, when when are we going to get there? Where is there? We're tired. And they say, don't worry, we're going. We're going to the resting place 
Imagine the excitement. God is leading us to a place of rest. They show up and there's nothing to drink. And so they're in a very similar situation to chapter 15, right? They've been to this place before without water. And they've seen God, not a long time ago, not to their ancestors, but to themselves, even weeks before this, miraculously provide. It's like taking a test that you fail. Raise your hand if you've ever, no, I was going to ask if you've ever failed an exam, but you can look at me and blink. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Right? We've all maybe done not as well on an exam. Remember, this is a university experience for them. Uh, and, and maybe you don't do as well on an exam as you expect. But imagine that situation where right after you, you submit your test, you see whatever the you know, fail grade is, they give you the right answers. They say, Mabruk, you can take this test again right now. You know, in theory, you'd think that you'd do better the second time around. You think they would say, hey, we, we've been here before. Let us trust God, for He is good, and His faithfulness lasts to a thousand generations. Let's not grumble like we have recently done, but let's call to Him. Let's go to God, because He's provided in the past. Right? We can trust that He will provide as He has and as He's promised. Is that what they do? No, they, they grumble again. Now, we're not working through Exodus, so we haven't kind of brought this up, but grumbling isn't just a, a complaint. This isn't just, oh, you got upset and you complain or you respond. No, this is a spirit of complaining. Right? This shows that this is a heart issue that they have. And the spirit of complaining, as we see, leads to disbelief and to disobedience. Let's keep reading. Let's look to the rest of our text, verses 4 through 7. So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. In verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, let me point out a few things from our passage before we, we go to the New Testament to, to see the fulfillment and even the interpretation of this passage. First thing to point out is that God provided. God provided. They, they continue to question God's presence and His provision. And once again, God proves Himself faithful to His people. Friends, this is a simple truth, but it's so important for us to know. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on our faithfulness. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on our faithfulness. Some of you, if not all of us, really need to hear that this morning. Right? God is faithful because of who He is, not because of what we do or what we don't do. I hope you know that this morning. And for those who know that, I hope you find rest in that this morning. And if you don't know, let's keep listening. 
The second thing we see is his, in, in this provision of his, we get a glimpse of his heart as a father. And first we see his provision that he provides, but also in his provision, we get a glimpse of his heart as a father. Again, remember the situation. There's an argument taking place. There's lots of complaining. There, there are accusations being made. It even seems that Moses was soon to be stoned. As we read the text, we see that even Moses himself was complaining a bit to God about the people. Right? You, you can almost hear his tone in his words. What should I do with this people? And how did God respond? He didn't step in and deal with the altercation. He, he didn't resolve the dispute. He moved straight away to deliver his children from trouble. I have two young boys, Noah and Shia, and imagine with me that they are arguing about a toy in the middle of the road. Would I, as their father, engage in their conversation? Do I yell out to Noah or to Shia and say, you guys know how to share better. Come on, boys, we've worked on this. No. As their father, I run to them and I pull them out of the road before they get run over. That's what we see here in God's response. His heart is a father. Right? He knows his children. He knows what's best for them, and so he responds to their need. He does all the things out of love. Now, the third thing for us to point out here in, in our passage is that there is a major difference than these two previous accounts. Remember, there are three back-to-back -back stories. Or in chapter 15, with the bitter water, and in chapter 16, the manna from heaven, the text tells us that God was testing them, right? He tested them to help them grow, to reveal their own hearts, and to prove himself. But here, even though we understand the sovereignty of God, we know that he is in control, that he led them to this place to test them again. What does the text tell us? The text tells us that they tested God. It actually says it twice. And so this detail, along with a few other things, it leads us to see that this account in Exodus 17 is a trial of sorts. The Israelites had put God on trial. Right? They brought their accusations, and they were charging God with abandonment and murder. We read it, right? Where is he? Is he with us or is, is he not with us? He brought us out here so that we would die. These aren't light words, especially spoken to God. And in a sort of mob rule, they were ready to pass a verdict, right? And stone Moses. That was his fear. They're going to stone him. And so let's think about this for a minute. They put God on trial. The God who heard their cry and came down from heaven to set them free from generations of slavery is now being accused of murder and abandonment. It's, honestly, it's astonishing and maddening. And, and as we look to these miserable people, we say, how dare you? Until we pause for a moment 
and remember the times that we have accused God and put him on trial. Right? Don't you question God when things aren't going the way that you expect them to go or hoped they would go? Why am I still single? God, you know how much we want kids. Why haven't you healed me from my sickness? You know I need a job. Why did my friend have to die? Why? 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 Which eventually leads to, do you even care? Are you even there? Friends, in their failure, we see our failure. But in our failure, we must remember Christ's victory. Now, let's leave Exodus 17 for a bit, and let's go to the New Testament to see what's said about this passage. You've heard me repeat how it all and always points to Jesus, and here we're going to see this in a very significant way. As the Apostle Paul, uh, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, is reflecting, it seems, uh, on, on the connection between Israel and the church, he comes to this account. And as he thinks of Exodus chapter 17, he makes a bold statement. It really is a bold interpretation. But we know that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Bible God, is God's word, is infallible, and so we trust his word. And so let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And we'll see this bold interpretation. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, when Paul calls this spiritual food and, and spiritual drink, he's referring to two things. First of all, that it was supernaturally provided, right? Bread from heaven, water from a rock. But also, there is spiritual significance. Right? The, the manna wasn't just God's provision for them at that time, but it pointed to what? To his ultimate provision for them through Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells us that he is the one who came down from heaven. He was the one who was sent down, that he himself is the bread of life. And just like wheat must die for it to be turned into bread so that it would nourish us and give us life, Jesus would die to give us life. Now we also understand that water is significant, don't we? In John chapter 4, the story of the, the woman at the well and the conversation that Jesus has with her, we, we hear this invitation from Jesus. He offered water and to drink, and never to thirst. Jesus offers 
life-giving water. We have a beautiful picture of, of this in Ezekiel chapter 47. Let me just quickly kind of paint the picture so we, we, we have this image in our minds. Where there's a temple, temple of God in the middle of a desert, a barren place. And at first, the story tells us that there's water that starts to come out of the temple. At first, it's a trickle of water, and then it, it gets deep enough where it reaches the ankles, and gets to the knees, then, then to the waist, and then it eventually gets deep enough, we see that a person couldn't cross it on, on foot. This flowing water turns a wasteland into a wonderland. And, and we read in Ezekiel 47 that it births trees that give fruit all year round. Bitter water is made fresh, and it draws all animals and all peoples, and it provides for all of them. Now, while Paul was reflecting on the incredible provision and work of God through his people, through his ancestors, right, through the wilderness and, and through the Exodus, as he's reflecting on the Exodus story and the imagery, Paul says that rock was Christ. Now, God is often referred to as, as a rock, right? We sang it before. We're going to sing more about, about Christ as a rock. One of the songs is Christ. You know, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, right? In the Bible, we see, we see God referred to as the rock of ages or the rock of our salvation. But Paul, there in 1 Corinthians 10, isn't generally calling Christ our rock. But he's looking to Exodus 17 and saying, he was that rock. Now remember again with me that we are meant to see the events of Exodus 17 as a trial. Let me read again verse, chapter 17, verse 6. I am going to stand there. This is God speaking, right? I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Now, picture it with me. There's a rock on the same mountain where God first met Moses through the burning bush. Now, we don't know what it looked like, but we're told that God stood in front of them. God, in a special way, was present there in front of Moses and the elders in some way. We don't know what it looked like. We don't really need to get in, into it, but we know that he was there. We also know that Moses has his staff, right, which has become a, a symbol of God's judgment. He refers to it in this conversation as, as the, the staff that you struck the Nile with, right, the first plague. He used it for the parting of the sea, which not only rescued God's people, but also it was judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And, and we need to say that judgment was necessary here. We considered the, the things that the Israelites said, haven't we? They, they put God on trial, but they're the ones who deserved his divine judgment. Friends, the only thing God can be accused of is being forever faithful to his people. And yet, they have accused him of unfaithfulness. Listen to this. One commentator looking at Exodus 17 said, Instead of judging his people for their sins, especially for their unbelief, 
He submitted himself to judgment so they could live. Judgment was necessary. We can all agree on that, but out of God's mercy and grace, he took the judgment. And as Paul is reading and reflecting, he's saying, that's Jesus. Right? He was the rock that took God's divine judgment so that we can live. Right? Because he took God's judgment, we have life. Even the prophet Isaiah prophesies of Jesus and listen to his words. He himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Friends, have you ever considered that as God saved you, he didn't only save you from sin and hell and death and from yourself, but ultimately God saved you from himself? Because God is just, he, he cannot overlook sin. In his holiness, he must send his wrath and his judgment down on sinners. And yet, in his love, he sent his son to take his wrath and his punishment. We deserved every drop of God's wrath, but instead, what, what happened? We, we were given fresh, eternal, living water. The Apostle John, with the depth of significance and symbolism that's found in his writing of his gospel, he points this out. As, as a fulfillment of prophecy in John chapter 19, we see that Jesus' legs weren't broken as he was on the cross. If you're not familiar with that, you say, well, what, he's dying already. What's the, what's, what would be the point of that? But if the soldiers for any reason needed to speed up death for those who are crucified to hang on the cross, they would break their legs. And the reason this, this sped up death is because as, as a person was on the cross, crucified, they, they would be sunken down. They can't breathe. And so the way they activate their lungs is by, by pushing up on their legs. So if you break a person's legs, they can't do that. They die faster. Let me, let me read those verses from John chapter 19. John writing, When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And here he's, he's quoting one not one, of his broken, uh, one, not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. And so John was showing prophecy fulfilled here, right? He was proving that Jesus died on the cross. That's significant to our faith. We wouldn't have a faith if that didn't happen. So he's proving the death of Christ on the cross. Right? But in pointing out that blood and water flowed out, 
He's showing that we have life through his death. Right, on the cross, God's perfect wrath met his perfect love. His perfect judgment met his perfect grace. Friends, Jesus was that rock that was stricken. And through the judgment of death and his resurrection from death, he gives life to all who would drink from him. Let me close with Jesus' words from John chapter 4. Speaking to this Samaritan woman at the well, he says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Now you might say, you don't know me, Pastor. You don't live here. You don't know my background. You don't know, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know where I come from. And you're right, I don't know. So you say, you can't make that offer. That offer isn't for me. Don't promise something that you can't keep. So let me tell you, friend, that this promise and offer is for you. Not only is Jesus saying, whoever, whoever means whoever, anyone, all people who come to him, right? Not only do we have that in this conversation, but remember with me who he's speaking to. He is offering living water to a Samaritan woman who has been outcast by society. Now, in that time, there, there really isn't anything lower than who she was, her background, her nationality and ethnicity, her experiences, her sin that all people knew. Friend, if she is included, you certainly are included and invited. Brothers and sisters, if you have already drunk from this living water, my prayer for you is that you are reminded and encouraged to find your satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. That you won't go looking elsewhere for things that you know won't satisfy, that you know will leave you thirsty, that you would look to Christ and Him alone. And friend, if you've never looked to Jesus as the source of eternal life and rest, that you would look to Him now, that you would believe His words are true, that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death that you deserved. And through his life, death, and resurrection, you have life. Would you this morning put your hope and trust completely in him and find rest for your weary soul? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that though we are enemies, though we have accused you over and over again, Father, that you love us to the point that you would send your Son to die on the cross for us. Father, would you help us to look to Jesus always? Lord, even this morning, I recognize that that no one can call on you unless you open their eyes and give them life. And so would you do that work that only you can do this morning? We thank you for your grace, for your presence, for your provision. 
We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.